Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A record-breaking flight at the dawn of aviation. They were determined that nothing was going to stop them. An historic hunt for an exotic animal. She decided, I'm going to find a giant panda. I'm going to do this. And a quest to break the chains of bondage. He had to wonder, would he always be a slave? Inside the walls of great institutions lie extraordinary relics. Tales of intrigue and wonder. And secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Named for the seventh president of the United States, Andrew Jackson, the city of Jackson, Mississippi, was virtually demolished by a Union siege during the Civil War. And nowhere is this tumultuous past better preserved than at the Old Capitol Museum. On display are Civil War weapons and uniforms, a replica of the governor's office, and the actual chamber where state officials voted to secede from the Union in 1860. But amidst these reminders of the 19th century is a brittle object from a more modern era. The artifact is about seven inches in diameter, about a half inch thick. When you open it, it has a metal reel with the word flight written on it. As archivist Celia Tisdale attests, this delicate film offers a window into one of the most spectacular stunts in Mississippi history. The events documented on this film are of a feat that has actually revolutionized the aviation industry. What high-flying exploit is depicted on this film? And how did it transform flight forever? Meridian, Mississippi, 1934. 30-year-old Al Key and his 26-year-old brother Fred are living their dream, co-managing the town's municipal airport. Alan and Fred Key were local boys. They had a passion for aviation. Licensed pilots themselves, they also earn money entertaining crowds as high-flying barnstormers. 
but the brothers' fortunes are about to change. The effects of the Great Depression have reached Meridian, and the small municipality finds itself broke. Meridian city leaders were looking for ways to cut costs. They set their sights on what they determined to be a modern and frivolous venture. The logical choice was this very new, very expensive airport. Al and Fred Key are crushed. For the airport to shut down, they would lose everything. The brothers realize that to save the airfield, they must rally public support against its closure. So they devise a PR stunt around the thing they love best, flying. They want to stay in the air longer than anybody else has ever stayed in the air. To beat the existing record, the brothers must eat and sleep in the air for more than 23 days. They begin preparations by modifying a Curtis Robin monoplane they christen Ole Miss. But their biggest concern is refueling midair. The plan is for a support plane to lower a fuel line to the brothers below, who will catch it and then carefully refill the Ole Miss. But this process is fraught with danger. If any of the fuel touches any of the hot airplane parts, there's the chance of explosion. Then a colleague approaches the brothers with what he thinks is the perfect solution. Their machinist friend fabricates a nozzle that, when dislodged from the gas tank, will automatically shut off. Now the stage is set for the Key Brothers' epic stunt. And on June 21, 1934, in front of an excited crowd of 10,000, Al and Fred take to the sky. After just a few hours of circling overhead, they make their first refueling attempt. The moment of truth. Is this really going to work? Fred grabs the hose. He puts it in. The keys hold their breath as the hose is removed. And as designed, the nozzle shuts off. Everything goes off without a hitch. The relieved brothers settle into a routine, circling above Meridian. But then, on day five, disaster strikes. Fred's doing his repairs, and then he notices a spark. The brothers discover they've been given the wrong octane rating, and the engine is overheating. They're forced to land the plane far short of the record. They were devastated. They could not believe that they had finally gotten to this point, only for it to just come crumbling down. But the determined brothers aren't ready to give up yet. So, in June of 1935, with little fanfare, they take to the skies again. They were determined that nothing was going to stop them. For three grueling weeks, they circle above Meridian, reigniting public fascination with their quest. But suddenly, the brothers encounter an entirely new crisis. Hal happened to have an abscessed tooth while he was in the air. The pain becomes unbearable, and it is clear that Al needs medical attention. But before beginning the descent, Al wonders if there's a way to treat himself. They radioed down, and a local dentist was able to coach him. They sent the supply bucket up. They were able to put in a syringe, and it had medication in it, and he was able to lance the tooth himself in flight. Al manages to carry on and the brothers inch closer to their goal. And on June 27th, they make history. When 3.13 in the afternoon, they break the record of 23 days in the air. Footage of the stunt, now in canisters at the old Capitol Museum, 
is seen on newsreels around the world. To further solidify their record, the brothers stay aloft for another four days and finally land on July 1st. The Key brothers were in the air for over 27 days. That's the equivalent of flying twice around the world. Thanks to the international publicity, officials decide to keep the airport open and rename it Key Field. And the legacy of the flight lives on. The refueling nozzle first used by the Key brothers becomes the industry standard for the entire U.S. military. And today, at the old Capitol Museum, this canister of film is a testament to a record-breaking flight that changed the face of aviation. Chicago, Illinois. Between 1830 and 1930, this city's population grew from 200 to over 3 million. And it was during this era that one of Chicago's great cultural institutions began to flourish. The Field Museum of Natural History. Its collection includes impressive dinosaur exhibits, nearly half a million bird specimens, and dozens of lifelike animal dioramas. But one display features what was once a mysterious beast. The animal is in a sitting posture, about two and a half feet high. Its fur is absolutely distinctive. According to curator Dr. Lawrence Heaney, this is no ordinary panda. This particular specimen is the result of one woman and a tragedy that started her off on the greatest adventure of her life. Who brought this panda to America? And how did its discovery transform the understanding of the entire species? 1934, New York. Chain-smoking Ruth Harkness is a fashion designer and socialite in the city's party scene. Ruth Harkness did not want to have an ordinary life. She was interested in, in new adventures. She's found the perfect match in her husband, Bill, an intrepid explorer who is looking for his next expedition. That summer, a newspaper article catches his eye. It describes a rare and elusive creature, China's giant panda. Pandas in particular at that time were extremely poorly known. The article speculates about the animal's diet, habitat, and even its genetic family, all mysteries to biologists of the day. There was one school of thought that there are essentially gigantic members of the raccoon family. And the article states that zoos might pay handsomely for the first panda brought to America. The first person who brought a live panda would potentially be able to sell it for twenty dollars to $30,000. Determined to capture the creature, Bill sets out for China while Ruth stays behind in New York. But 13 months into the journey, Ruth receives some horrible news. Her husband has suddenly died from a fast-moving cancer. She had absolutely no clue that he was in such poor health. But then Ruth is dealt another blow. Bill's family has cut her out of the will. It seems that her days in New York's high society are over. But then she's struck by a notion. The cash reward from her husband's unfinished quest can still be obtained. She decided, I'm going to go find a giant panda, bring it back. I will get the money, and I'm going to do this. To the utter astonishment of the New York elite, Ruth heads off to Shanghai. She'd never done anything like this before. Using the last of her savings to secure a guide, 
she sets off up the Yangtze River towards Chengdu, where they will embark into the mountains. This is really rugged. And for a New York socialite, it's astounding that she was able to do it at all. But weeks into the trip, Ruth has yet to see even the slightest sign of a panda. So will this New York socialite successfully capture the elusive creature and claim her cash prize? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's 1936. Northern China. Down on her luck socialite, Ruth Harkness is on a quest to become the first Westerner to capture a live panda and snare a much-needed cash prize. So can Harkness locate the elusive animal and regain her fortune? November 9th. Ruth and her guide are deep in the valley of Chaopo when they spot signs of jungle life, trampled grass, and broken bamboo. They had found evidence that there was a den and there was a baby panda. Two years after her husband set out, Ruth has succeeded in his quest. But capturing a panda is one thing. Successfully transporting it back home is a completely different challenge. She was absolutely determined to do everything that she could to keep that animal alive. Harkness names the panda Su Lin 
and patiently teaches it to use a baby bottle. When the pair finally arrives back in America, Harkness expects the financial offers to come pouring in. But she is in for a shock. Zoologists are concerned they can't properly care for the exotic animal. They were reluctant to give her a lot of money for an animal that they thought might not survive. The best Ruth can do is send Su Lin to the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago. She receives a paltry $2,000, a small fraction of the expedition's cost. On April 20th, 1937, Su Lin finally goes on public exhibition. And while Ruth doesn't get the payout she hoped for, it soon becomes evident that her quest has enriched the country. It clearly was a huge national sensation with people taking trains to Chicago from all over the country to go see this animal. She asks Brookfield Zoo officials to fund an expedition to bring back a second panda, and they agree. Ruth had made herself into a successful adventurer, someone who was capable of bringing back animals that excited the public tremendously. Sue Lin offers scientists at the Field Museum an opportunity to put to rest some of the mysteries that have persisted for so long. The museum conducted a study that is still regarded as one of the finest studies of anatomy that's ever been done on any species. They conclude that pandas are not raccoons, but bears, can live at low and high altitudes, and rely almost entirely on a diet of bamboo. And today, Su Lin's taxidermied body is on display at the Field Museum of Natural History, a testament to one woman's determination to fulfill her husband's dream. The city of Alexandria, Louisiana, is located in the geographic center of the state. It is also a center of higher education and the home of the Louisiana State University at Alexandria. Here on its campus lies a rather humble building, the Epps House. This reconstructed 1852 cottage serves as a museum and memorial to the harrowing history of slavery. It features plantation tools, iron handcuffs, and chains. But among these articles of constraint lies one artifact that performed a far different function. This artifact is a piece of paper, eight and a half inches wide, it is beat up. The ink has faded. According to Professor Jerry Sanson, this document tells the epic story of one man's unparalleled imprisonment. He was resilient, he was resourceful, and he never gave up. To whom is this letter addressed? And what role did it play in one man's quest for freedom? March 1841, Saratoga Springs, New York. A resident of this abolitionist state, 32-year-old African-American Solomon Northup lives in freedom. But the determined father struggles to support his wife and three children. Solomon Northup had many occupations. He also played the fiddle. One day, while looking for work, Northup receives an intriguing proposal. He was approached by two men who made him an offer to accompany them and provide music for traveling shows that they planned to perform. Relieved to find even a temporary job, he gladly accepts the offer and departs immediately. For weeks, the group performs along the eastern seaboard before arriving in the nation's capital. When Solomon Northup was in Washington, D.C., 
He went for drinks with his two associates. But as the evening progresses, Northup begins to feel sick. He realized that obviously something had been placed in his drink. Northup loses consciousness, and when he comes to, he has no idea where he is or how much time has passed. Solomon Northup awoke in a dark place. He realized that he was chained. A couple of men informed him that he was a runaway slave from Georgia. Northup tells them he is a free man, but his pleas are ignored. He was beaten almost into within an inch of his life. After two hellish years in captivity, Northup is taken to Holmesville, Louisiana. There, he is purchased by a fearsome plantation owner named Edwin Epps. Edwin Epps inflicted physical punishment on his slaves and emotional punishment as well. For seven years, Northup endures all manner of evils under his new master. Probably the only thing that kept Solomon Northup going was his hope that one day he could regain his freedom and rejoin his family in New York. Northup realizes his only hope lies in getting a message to authorities in New York. So, one night in his cabin, he secretly pens a letter detailing his plight. He was risking being killed. But suddenly, an enraged Epps bursts in. It seems that a fellow plantation worker divulged Northup's secret bid for freedom. Fearful he's about to be hanged, he quickly thinks on his feet. He convinced Edwin Epps that the man had lied to him. Epps leaves, and a dejected Solomon Northup destroys all evidence of his guilt. He had to wonder, was this the end of his hopes? Would he always be a slave? Northup continues to endure his nightmare. Then, in June 1852, a new laborer is hired at the plantation. A white man named Samuel Bass. Samuel Bass, a carpenter, originally from Canada, arrived also to work on the new house that Epps was building. Northup learns that the Canadians' beliefs differ quite strongly from the other white men in the area. Samuel Bass came down very squarely on the anti-slavery side. Sensing that Bass could be an ally, the captive confides in the northerner. Northup seized the opportunity to tell him that he was a free man. He was a citizen of New York. Bass is stunned. Northup then asks him if he'll relay a message to the New York authorities. Aware of the risks, Bass agrees. If their plot was discovered, they could be imprisoned. Northup especially could have been punished with death. Bass soon departs. But as the months pass, Northup fears his hopes have been in vain. But then, in January 1853, a group of men arrive and deliver a stunning proclamation to Edwin Epps. The document, a copy of which remains on display at the Epps house, is signed by the governor of New York and orders the immediate release of Solomon Northup. Solomon Northup was overjoyed. Samuel Bass had been good to his word. After 12 long years, Solomon Northup travels home to his family. 
He writes a memoir detailing his harrowing saga, which is later transformed into the Oscar-winning film 12 Years a Slave. And today at the Epps House, this document stands as a symbol of hope and a reminder that the path to freedom can be a long and winding road. Miami, Florida. This cosmopolitan city's imposing skyline and stunning waterfront draw in over 14 million visitors a year. One of the city's premier tourist attractions is a world-class museum known as History Miami. Here at History Miami, you can see such diverse artifacts as cannons that go back to the Spanish period, or boats that brought over people fleeing Cuba. There's a 1924 trolley that actually ran the streets of Miami. But according to museum historian Paul George, one item speaks to an improbable moment of revolutionary zeal. It's a fabric about 19 inches in length. It has a pink conch shell and it has the sun emblazoned in it also. This colorful standard was once raised in defiance. This flag represents something really shocking. The David and Goliath battle between a small group of people refusing to be bullied by a large, oppressive force. What role did this flag play in a tense political standoff that rocked the nation? April 1982, Key West, Florida. For decades, this sleepy island town at the southernmost tip of the continental U.S. has been a haven for fun-loving vacationers. But two years earlier, 125,000 Cuban refugees landed on the shores of southern Florida in what became known as the Mariel Boatlift. And the resulting humanitarian crisis kept visitors at bay. Key West can't afford any more setbacks uh, because tourism is so critical to its economy. The man charged with keeping business humming is one of the youngest mayors in the country, an eccentric 28-year-old named Dennis Wardlow. Dennis Wardlaw is very young to be a mayor, and yet, in many ways, he's grabbed the reins of power, and he's a masterful promoter of Key West. On Sunday, April 18th, his skills are put to the test. Wardlow receives a call informing him that all hell is breaking loose on a critical roadway. There's only one road that takes you from the mainland of South Florida down to Key West, and that was the Overseas Highway. The young mayor is told that the federal government has set up a roadblock 19 miles north of Key West. Border Patrol has set up this checkpoint for illegal immigrants and for contraband drugs, and they're stopping every car. With thousands of frustrated weekenders trying to leave the Keys, the situation is quickly getting out of hand. It's complete gridlock. They've come to a halt, and they have no idea what's going on. They're honking horns. It's a messy situation. But the Border Patrol informs Wardlow the roadblock is getting results, and they have no intention of removing it anytime soon. The mayor is incensed. With residents of Key West restricted from the mainland and tourists beginning to grumble, he resolves to act decisively. Wardlow decides to contact higher-up figures, the state and even national level. What can we do to lift this blockade? But after days of outreach, the mayor gets nowhere. So he takes the bold step of suing the federal government to lift the checkpoint. Wardlow is confident that justice will prevail, but he's forced to swallow a bitter pill. The judge dismisses this lawsuit, saying that the federal government's within its rights to carry out this activity of stopping cars. The mayor is at a loss. 
But when he descends the courthouse steps, he finds a gaggle of reporters waiting for him. He quickly realizes that he has to say something about how he intends to save Key West. He tells them, this whole issue isn't over yet. I've got something up my sleeve that will counter this. Finally, the day of Wardlow's big announcement arrives, as more than 700 residents gather in Key West's Mallory Square. The embattled mayor climbs onto a flatbed truck in the center of the square. There, he makes a stunning announcement. Key West will secede from the United States and create a republic of its own. If Key West is a foreign country to Washington, Washington shall represent a foreign nation to Key West. To the delight of the raucous crowd, Wardlow dubs the fledgling country the Conch Republic in honor of the abundant local shellfish. Then he declares himself the prime minister. Suddenly, the new flag of this new republic is unfurled and it is pulled up a flagpole. A replica of the flag, depicting a blazing sun and a pink conch shell, is now on display at History Miami. Then, as if seceding from the Union is not enough, the zany Wardlow declares war on the United States. Wardlaw appoints a friend of his as Secretary of the Navy, another as Minister of Defense. But the Conch Republic's valiant war is short-lived. By the end of the day, Wardlow offers a formal surrender. As far as I know, this is the shortest war in history. Reporters from across the country descend on Key West, spreading news of Wardlow's madcap stunt far beyond Florida. And local souvenir stands begin selling Conch Republic passports and temporary visas. Wardlaw's stunt, I think, brought millions of dollars worth of publicity to Key West. It's like, this place is really zany. Maybe this is a place we want to come and visit. Weeks later, under the glare of national scrutiny, the Border Patrol finally gives in. The federal government just very quietly decides to withdraw this whole blockade measure. To this day, the banner of the Conch Republic still flies across Key West, and an annual Independence Day festival is celebrated every April 23rd. This flag, housed at History Miami, stands as a memento of an outrageous scheme when the far-flung Key West became its own sovereign state. Boulder, Colorado. Overlooking this city are the Flatiron Mountains, named by pioneer women who thought the range resembled the implement they used to press clothes. At the foot of these majestic peaks is the headquarters of another entity looking over the area the Boulder County Sheriff's Office. Within its visitor center, items like a hand-forged badge, a master set of jailer's keys, and a 19th century Derringer pistol chronicle law enforcement's quest for order. But this crime-related collection contains one graceful object that seems better suited for an art exhibit. The artifact is about a foot tall, nine inches wide, with narrow set blue eyes. As Boulder historian Sylvia Petham knows firsthand, this figure held the key to unlocking a case that many thought would remain closed forever. This artifact really breathed new life into a long-standing murder mystery. Who was the model for this sculpture, and how was it used to find her killer? October 1996, Boulder, Colorado. Historian and journalist Sylvia Petham is walking through the city's Columbia Cemetery when an unusual gravestone catches her eye. 
It said Jane Doe, April 1954, age about 20 years. And so I wondered, what is her name? Where did she come from? Why did she die? Pedham's skills are ideal for finding the answers. I was writing a history column for the Boulder Daily Camera, and one of the first things that I did after learning about this gravestone was read every newspaper article I could find. Her research leads her directly to a case that went cold over 40 years earlier. April 1954, Boulder. County Sheriff Art Everson receives a phone call with a disturbing tip. There was a body of a young woman found hurled down an embankment on the edge of Boulder Creek. Everson hikes into the ravine and finds the woman's battered body. She had a skull fracture as well as a number of injuries along the left side of her body. Everson eventually concludes that the victim was fatally struck before being thrown into the canyon. It seems like a clear-cut case of murder. But upon assembling an investigative team, Everson and his colleagues realize they face a crucial problem. No one had a clue who was this young woman. Desperate for leads on the victim's identity, the sheriff sends the media a basic description. This young woman was described as about 110 pounds, five foot two. She was slender and petite and had blonde hair. This Jane Doe murder case becomes a juicy subject in the press, yet the attention fails to produce any leads. The case just went cold. Eventually, Jane Doe's unclaimed body is buried in an anonymous grave at Boulder's Columbia Cemetery, and her story slips into obscurity. This young woman was essentially forgotten. But the scarce details only spur Sylvia Petham to action. I wanted to know who killed her. Petham believes there's only one way to identify Jane Doe. We had to have something visual to show what this young woman looked like. Petham convinces the authorities to exhume the body and then enlists a forensic artist to create a three-dimensional likeness of the woman. Using the victim's skull, the artist sculpts this bust, now on display at the Boulder County Sheriff's Office. Investigators distribute photos of the sculpture to the media, hopeful it will stir fresh leads. Finally, in September 2009, Petham receives promising news. I opened an email from a young woman who said, I think my great aunt may be Jane Doe. The young woman writes that the bust bears a striking resemblance to photos of her grandmother's long-lost sister, Dorothy Gay Howard. When Petham talks to the local woman, the story comes into sharper focus. In early 1954, 18-year-old Dorothy disappeared from her home in Arizona. But the free-spirited teen had run away before, so her family assumed she would eventually return and never reported her missing. Petham believes it's as likely a scenario as any. So later that month, Dorothy's surviving sister submits a DNA sample. The profile from her and the remains were compared, and they matched. We finally knew who this young woman was. But more than half a century has elapsed since this case went cold. Further research of newspaper articles from the time reveals a likely suspect, an ex-con named Harvey Glattman. In 1954, a 26-year-old Glattman was staying with his parents in Denver and he had already been in trouble with the law. 
he had assaulted other women in this neighborhood where Dorothy Gay Howard's aunt lived. Authorities theorize that Glattman kidnapped Dorothy and killed her. But despite the strong evidence pointing to Glattman, it's too late to question him about the crime. In 1958, he was executed for the murders of three other women in California. Harvey Glattman took his secret to the grave. Although the alleged murderer of Dorothy Gay Howard never faced justice for his crime, today, this sculpture at the Boulder County Sheriff's Visitor Center embodies the 54-year quest to finally give this Jane Doe a face and a name. New York City has long been a wellspring of growth and transformation. But within this constantly changing urban landscape stands a guardian of the city's past, the New York Historical Society. Among the items on display is a painting of George Washington taking the oath of office, the world's most valuable coin, and a statue of a Native American chief. But one of the society's most captivating artifacts helped define Manhattan as a financial powerhouse in the Young Republic. It's about 200 years old. It's made of wood and was hollowed out by hand. According to historian Gerard Keppel, this excavated section of a tree conceals a dark and murky secret. This odd little piece of wood laid the groundwork for a very elaborate ruse. What is this crude artifact? And what role did it play in a scheme that transformed the American economy? Manhattan, 1798. In the stifling months of July and August, the city is in the grips of a growing public health crisis. In the summer, an incredible devastation happens here. Yellow fever comes to town, and it kills 2,000 New Yorkers. With one in 30 residents succumbing to the disease, the city fathers are determined to act. Chief among them is Alexander Hamilton. The Bank of New York founder fears that the epidemic could bring commerce in the city to a halt. So he turns his attention to what is believed to be the primary culprit, unsanitary drinking water. New York City was a pretty dirty place. It gets its water from local wells that are dug in backyards or in the street by the city. Now, there are a lot of wells, but the water in them was never particularly good. For Hamilton, a possible solution to the problem comes from a most unlikely source, when he is approached by his longtime political foe, Aaron Burr. They were opposed politically, but they had a strange relationship, offending each other uh, at times, but often of the same mind philosophically. In this case, it appears that Burr's motivations are in line with his own. Burr is seeking support for a groundbreaking new plan to completely revamp Manhattan's water system. Burr launches this idea of a private company to supply New York City with water from a, a distance away. The water will be piped in from the Bronx River at the far northern end of Manhattan. But the extremely ambitious endeavor will require a massive new infrastructure. Burr proposes that the company be capitalized at $2 million, which is an outstanding amount of money. 
Despite the vast capital required, Hamilton supports his rival's worthy bid. And thanks to his backing, the company's charter is signed into law. It's incorporated in April of 1799 as the Manhattan Company. That spring, construction officially begins. A few weeks into the project, Hamilton decides to inspect one of the sites, and he's troubled by what he finds. The workers are digging new wells in lower Manhattan. The whole point of this company is not to dig more wells. They were supposed to have gone to the Bronx River. An alarmed Hamilton begins investigating the activities of the Manhattan Company. The Manhattan Company puts up a waterworks, creates a reservoir, and lays a network of very leaky log pipes. A section of one of the pipes is on display at the New York Historical Society. Hamilton is outraged. So he heads to the Manhattan Company's headquarters. There was nothing having to do with water at the Manhattan Company's offices on Wall Street. Hamilton digs into the books and is horrified to find that of the $2 million in the company's coffers, barely 100000 has been spent to improve the city's water system. Something strange is going on with Aaron Burr and his company. It seems the answer lies in the fine print. Back in the spring of 1799, when the charter of the Manhattan Company was being discussed in the state assembly, Aaron Burr made a last-minute adjustment to the bill. He snuck this clause in very late in the debate. The language stated that as long as the company spent money on the waterworks, it could use its surplus capital for any legal purpose it wished. It was as if Burr had written himself a blank check. And it seems that what Burr has in mind for all this money is not a water company at all, but a bank, one that would be a direct challenge to his greatest rival. He needed a bank to compete with Alexander Hamilton's Bank of New York. For years, Hamilton's bank has serviced the commercial needs of an exclusive circle that shares his political interests. Now Burr wants to make capital available to a much broader swath of the population, including Hamilton's enemies. His old nemesis is furious at the deception. It seems pretty clear that Burr used Hamilton as a pawn. But with the company's charter in place, there's nothing Hamilton can do. So, for the next 43 years, the people of New York consume filthy water from shoddy wooden pipes. Yet the future is bright for the company that installed Manhattan's flawed waterworks. What started as this little bank of the Manhattan Company in 1799 in New York is now the global bank called J.P. Morgan Chase. And today, this section of log pipe in the New York Historical Society is a harsh reminder of the city's complex and often ruthless financial history. From a high-flying stunt to an elusive animal, a quest for freedom to an unfurled flag. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.